All right, good afternoon, everyone. I am continuing my sermon series today. It's part three, a sermon series on the end times. Everybody say eschatology. And so last week, I summarized the three major views on what is called the millennium. The idea of the millennium comes from Revelation chapter 20. I talked about how the premillennialist takes Revelation chapter 20 in its natural reading. It's just a plain reading of it and interprets it to mean a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth in the future. That's the premillennial view. The postmillennialist believes that the millennium is coming up in the future. It's not, it's not necessarily literally a thousand years. But that the world is getting more and more Christianized to the point where society is going to be so permeated with Christian values that the world is going to get brighter and brighter. Things are going to get better and better. More and more people are going to become Christians. And then eventually Jesus is going to be like, wow, you guys are doing such an awesome job down there. Let me come down there. And he comes at his second coming and comes to receive the kingdom that the saints have advanced on the earth. That's post-millennialism. That the world is getting better and better and that Christ returns at the end of the millennium. That's why it's called post. The third view, major view, was amillennialism. Now, to be fair, amillennialists do not like the label amillennialism. Because ah means uh, negated. They, you know, it, it means that you don't believe in the millennium, but that's not true. They believe in a millennium. They just believe that Revelation 20 is talking about a figurative millennium. That's really talking about the current church age. And so they interpret a lot of the passages in Revelation in a spiritualized sense to apply to the church. And so the amillennialist believes the millennium is happening right now from the, begin- from the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago and has been continuing until now. That's the amillennialist. All right, so those are three Major views of the millennium that I talked about. Now, I recognize that there is another major view that's popular in the body of Christ that I failed to mention. There are those in the church who say, you know, everything is so complicated. Um, There's no, I don't think there's any use in studying this eschatology stuff because I don't think we can ever really know. Thinking about the different millennial views gives me a headache. So you know what? I'm a pan-millennialist. I believe that everything is just going to pan out at the end. (laughs) Sorry, can I get my glasses? Um, For anyone who has that attitude, and you know what? In this room, I believe there are uh, many of you who actually have that attitude. I've been talking to y'all. I've been looking through the comments from all our leaders on our Facebook page. I'm a little bit troubled at your attitude. Let me talk about why you cannot afford 
to have a simple attitude in the matter of eschatology. You know, Proverbs chapter 1 says, How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? The waywardness of the simple will kill them. And the complacency of fools will destroy them. In the matter of the end times, you cannot settle for a simple view. Uh, I can't, no one can ever really know type of attitude. You cannot afford to settle for that. In fact, at this hour, more and more pastors and preachers all over the world are clearly teaching on this topic. Though it may have not been so clear in the past, the eschatology topic is right now being taught with great clarity at this hour. So you know what? You have no excuse. You must be able to articulate your end time view, defend it exegetically using the scriptures, and live in light of its implications. Every single believer in the church has got to do this. And if you're a member of New Philly, or you're a son from afar, you're listening by podcast, you know, you, you ought to feel a fire to articulate this. You got to know what the end times views are all about. Even if you disagree, you got to be able to articulate what I believe in. What the father of this house has been teaching, you got to be able to at least sum it up. Check this out. Eschatology is not rocket science. Hey, take away the PowerPoint. That's distracting. You know, you can easily learn what some of these terms mean. You just need a few minutes. All right? And you don't need years of seminary training to study the scriptures on this topic. Stop being so simple. You cannot afford to be ignorant to these issues and just believe that it's all going to just work itself out. If thinking about it gives you a headache, then take an Advil and get on with it. Jesus himself taught on this again and again and again. Luke 21 verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who are living on the face of the earth. All. Means all. Believers, non-believers, it's going to fall on everyone. So be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Mark 13, 33. Jesus says, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Again, he says in verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
The attitude of the pan-millennialists is not an attitude of alertness or preparation. It is the attitude of what I will call the ignorant fool. The simple one that's about to face this destruction. If you do not prepare for the end times, the end times is going to mess you up. The apostles taught on it in order to warn us, to prepare us. That implies that those who do not prepare will be overwhelmed. They will be disillusioned because the events that take place right before and during Christ's return is going to be dramatic. These events are going to be unprecedented. Nothing like it has ever been seen on the earth. And so the Bible talks about it over and over again. To get ourselves ready. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell him, you need to stop being so simple. New Philly leaders. It is not rocket science. I should not have to preach on it twice and you still cannot articulate the three major views. Please step it up. If you don't, if you can't articulate it, how do you expect your small group members to articulate it? How do you expect your small group members to prepare for the end times when you're not preparing for the end times. When you're not fully convinced from the scriptures, you're not searching the scriptures. You're not doing any of that because you're just like, ah, just give me a headache. That attitude needs to go. I will not tolerate the attitude on the church leadership. All right. I know it took a long time for me to finally preach on this, but now I'm coming. I'm coming clear and I'm coming strong. And so that means that you as a leadership, you need to do your part. It's going to take a time and a, a season of you searching the scriptures for you to be fully convinced and for you to fully articulate and fully defend. Well, articulate should be in a week or two. To defend it from the scriptures, it's going to take some time. But you got to do your part. Now, in, re- in regards to which position you hold to, it is imperative that you arrive at your conclusion based on a sound interpretation of Scripture. You cannot just say, I, well, I want to be positive. I'm a positive person. You know, I don't like all this negativity about the end times. I just want to kind of be positive. It's not about being positive. God doesn't give us a feedback form to get our opinion on how should the world should end. The Father has appointed the end time events by His own authority and He has provided us prophetic clues to help us prepare for the end times. Our views must come from a sound and persuasive interpretation of the Bible. So I presented to you the three main millennial views that have been believed throughout church history. 
I have summed up what those views are. Last week I argued for the historic pre-millennial, pre-millennial view. And today I'm going to preach on what is called the Great Tribulation. Everybody say tribulation. tribulation. What is the Great Tribulation? Well, there are three passages in which Jesus teaches directly on the end times and talks about the tribulation. You can find it in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. I want you to turn to Mark, Matthew 24 at this time. I'm going to read this passage before we continue. Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. Those are the passages where you're going to find Jesus talking about the end times. But go to Matthew 24. And I'm going to read a little bit from verses 3 to 21. So you're going to have to stay with me. Open up your Bible. If you're a guest, please lean over to someone who has a Bible and please read along. Don't look at my face. My face is not going to give you some PowerPoint with the script. We're not even going to put it up there. We don't do that here at New Philly because, you know, y'all have, you know, the worst thing, you can at least search it on Safari, like on your web browser on your smartphone and pull it up. You know what I mean? We want you to read along in your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible, even if you're not a believer, if you don't have a Bible, get yourself a Bible. You know, you come into church, you know, at least like, like pretend that you're a Christian for now. You know, so that, you know, people will accept you more. I don't know. No, I'm playing. Don't, don't do that. Be real. Be true, true to where you are. Anyway, if you really want to explore Christianity, you're going to need one of these, all right? You need a Bible. So look at uh, Matthew 24, verses 3. I'm going to read from verse 3 to 21. Jesus sat on the mountain of Olives. I'm going to read from the ESV. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And when... What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of that age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. It's a lot of people being led astray. I wonder why. All right, I'm sorry. I keep going. (laughs) Verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, don't worry about what that is, all right? We're going to study that at a different point. That's like, that's like a finer detail. Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee, flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in this house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great 
tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and no and never will be. I'll end there. You can read the rest of that passage in your own personal time. But Jesus goes on to talk about the, the end times and what to expect. Historic premillennialism has believed that before the second coming of Jesus, that there will be a great tribulation that will precede the millennium. So the premillennialists believe that Christ comes back at the beginning of the millennium, but the historic premillennialists believes that the church, you and me, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High God, believers will have to experience and go through the Great Tribulation. That is what historic premillennialism has taught. That's what, if you read the old uh, church fathers, the patristic fathers, in their writings, they expected the church to go through this tribulation that Jesus is talking about here. Now, when I say tribulation, I'm not talking about the trials and tribulations of, you know, of, you know, like, you know, Jamie Lee, you know, I don't know, like, you know, like when you have hardships, you know, oh, I'm going through trials and tribulations. That's not what we're talking about. In eschatology, when that word tribulation is used, it is often referring to the great tribulation at the end times. So, historic premillennialism has always taught the church to ready themselves to go through the great tribulation. Now, in the 19th century, that means in the 1800s, a new version of premillennialism became immensely popular because of the writings of a guy named John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. He taught a redemption framework that the church had yet to see called dispensationalism. Everybody say dispensationalism. Dispensation. Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, without going into it, it went on to popularize what is known today as the pre-tribulation rapture. Everybody say pre-trip. The pre-trip. Let me get you in on the lingo, right? There's the pre-trip rapture. The historic premillennialist doesn't believe in that. They believe in what will be called a post-trip rapture. That the, trip, the rapture takes place after the church goes through the tribulation. But dispensationalists teach that it happens before the tribulation starts. At this time, I want to show you how music artists and movie producers have helped to spread this teaching among American evangelicals. First of all, I'm going to show you the performance of a song called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. It's written by a guy named Larry Norman in 1969. It became immensely popular. And in this version, DC Talk is uh, doing a cover song of Le- Larry Norman's I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Can you move this, Chris? All right, let's split it.
Larry Norman, who was a true child of the 60s, wrote the next song we're going to do. Life was filled with guns and war And all of us got trampled on the floor I wish we'd all been ready The children died, the days grew cold A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold I wish we'd all been ready Time to change your mind The sun has come And you've been left behind A man and wife asleep in bed She hears a noise And turns her head He's gone I wish we'd all been Up a hill, one disappears, and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time right, to good. change your mind. Alright, so this song inspired a movie that came a couple years later called Thief in the Night. In fact, they used this song in the soundtrack for the for the movie i'm gonna read the film synopsis of thief in the night listen patty joe myers is a young woman who considers herself a christian because she occasionally reads her bible and goes to church regularly she refuses to believe the warnings of her friends and family that she will go through the great tribulation if she does not accept jesus personally one morning she awakens to find that her husband and millions of others have suddenly disappeared Gradually, Patty realizes that the rapture, an event some interpret from the Bible, has happened. And she and everyone else has been left behind and are entering into the great tribulation, the last days of the earth dominated by the Antichrist. And show that clip. It's the opening scene of Thief in the Night. Came out in 1972. all over the globe confirming it as true. To say that the world is in a state of shock this morning would be to understate the situation. The event seems to have taken place at the same time all over the world just about 25 minutes ago. Suddenly and without warning, literally thousands, perhaps millions of people just disappeared. Few eyewitness accounts of these disappearances have not been clear, but one thing is certainly sure. Millions who were living on this earth last night are not here this morning. Speculation is running high that some alien force from outside our system has declared war Jim! on the planet. And some feel it to be a spectacular judgment of God. Church Confederation has proposed that this might actually be the rapture spoken of. 
strategy. He says, and I quote, Of course, even if it is something like the rapture, we need not panic. The very fact that we are here and able to discuss it is uh, sign enough that. that it is not. The title of the movie comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.2, where the Apostle Paul warns the church that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This film has been seen by an estimated 300 million people worldwide. At this time, I'm going to show you another movie from more recently in 2001 starring Kirk Cameron. It is a movie based on an immensely popular fiction book, New York Times bestseller. The, the book is called, the book series is called Left Behind by Tim LaHaye. I want you to uh, run the clip from the 2001 opening scene of Left Behind. Probably in the lab. I'm telling you, they're not here. They're not anywhere. Okay? Their shoes, their clothes, their classes, crazy. They're left behind. The people are gone. I'll be right back. I am not nuts, Ray. Go look for yourself. Car, please just take your seat. Daddy, help me, please. Sit down, we'll find them. Not me, next. I'm not going next. Daddy, try and get a new camera.
Nobody's gonna die. Just take it easy. Just take it easy, okay? You're gonna be all right. What's going on, Captain? Hi, Mom. It's me. I just want to apologize for missing the party this afternoon. Oh, no. Are you okay? Driver. There's no driver in there. There, there. It's okay, sir. You're in shock. You know, due to the success of these films and the success of a book called Hal, uh, a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth, that's in the 70s, and the popularity of the Left Behind uh, Fiction book series, the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture has become immensely popular among American evangelicals despite remaining a minority view in global Christianity. It kind of tells you where Americans might be getting their theology from. <laughs> um, I remember as a, as a teenager, I also got ingrained with this pre-tribulation rapture idea. And I remember one Saturday I woke up. <clears throat> much like this woman from the first movie scene. Around 10 a.m. I woke up kind of late. And I just started brushing my teeth, getting ready, and I went into my mom's room. My mom wasn't there. I was about 15, 16 years old. I think I was about 14, 15, I'm sorry. And I went to my sister's room. My sister wasn't there. I came downstairs, and I tried to call my friend. My, call, my friend wasn't picking up. I went outside, and it was just dead silence. There was not a single car going through the streets of Philadelphia. And then my heart started to race. <laughs> I kid you not. I started running throughout the entire house. I was like, Ma! Ma! Nuna! And I just started crying. And I just remember I ran upstairs. I got on my knees. I said, no, Lord, I'm sorry. Please take me to... Yeah, I was not kidding around. I mean, I really thought I got left behind. <clears throat> true story, true story. Pre-trib rapture. What is this? And should I be worried about being left behind too? You know, when non-believers watch this movie or even Christians watch this movie, it puts a lot of fear into your heart. Right? You don't want to be left behind. You know, you don't want to be on an airplane and all of a sudden your kids are gone. You know, one important teaching of dispensationalism is that when you get raptured, you cannot take your clothes with you. Okay, you got to make sure you take a mental note, okay? Because you're going up butt naked. Whether you like it or not, can't take your clothes. Anyway, I'm sorry. So what is the pre-tribulation rapture? First of all, what is the great, uh, what is the great tribulation? 
In eschatology, this word tribulation refers to the great tribulation that Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 and in the other two Gospels. Jesus says himself in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be great tribulation. In the Greek, it's mega thalipsis. A great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, they will never will be. In other words, it's going to be the most difficult, most dramatic time ever that the earth has ever seen. And the earth has seen some pretty dramatic times. So that's the great tribulation. It's what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. Now, what is the rapture? The rapture is the transporting of believers to heaven at the second coming of Jesus. It comes to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. I'll read that for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive are left and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay. So the Apostle Paul talks about this revelation he got of the end times. And this is where we get the idea of a rapture. The idea of a rapture is biblical. It's in the Bible. Where we get transported to meet Jesus in the air. Now, according to the movie clips we just watched, the rapture takes place before the great uh, tribulation. So the view that they represent is accurately called pre-tribulational premillennialism. Everybody got that? Pre-tribulational premillennialism. Please say that for me. Now, this view did not originate with a movie producer or a songwriter. If you follow the rabbit trail far enough, it goes back to dispensationalism. In contrast, historic premillennialism teaches a post-tribulational rapture. It teaches a rapture, but it teaches that it happens after the church goes through the tribulation. And they uh, and historic premillennialists would say that the rapture takes place after the tribulation, and simultaneously, as Christ is descending on the earth, the church is raptured up to meet Christ in the air, and then they come down to earth to start the golden age, the millennium. So, to distinguish it from dispensationalism, it is very helpful to call historic premillennialism. Post-tribulational premillennialism. All right. Dispensationalists believe that before the second coming of Jesus, there will be a secret second coming of Jesus. And that the secret coming is going to happen before the tribulation. And in this secret second coming of Jesus, Jesus secretly raptures the church. So you see in the movie clips, these people, these poor people had no hint, no clue that their relatives who were devout Christians, that they will suddenly disappear from the earth. 
Because it's a secret rapture. It's a secret second coming of Jesus. Now they believe in a public glorious second coming of Jesus. But they believe that the secret coming happens first. And it happens before the tribulation. And then the public one happens before the, right before the millennium. So they use Matthew 24, verse 40 and 42 to support this idea. And you heard bits of this in the DC Talk cover version of Larry Norman's song. Matthew 24, verse 40 and 42 says, Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. I wish we'd all been ready. <laughs> verse 41, two, me- two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Okay? So they use that text to try to support this idea of a secret coming of Christ where he raptures up the church suddenly. Now, <clears throat> some of the implications of a pre-tribulation rapture need to be thought about. If indeed we as the church, we ought to expect to be spared from the tribulation, that we're all going to be raptured out of it before it even begins, the implications of it mean that we are not going to have a great zeal to engage social action. Why? Well, the Antichrist is going to take over the world anyway. We're going to get raptured out. What's the use of even trying to reform society? What's the use of trying to reform the entertainment industry? Of getting engaged with politics? Of trying to reform education? What's the use? The whole world is going to be under the power of the Antichrist. So what we ought to do is evangelize to as many people as you can. That's the most important thing. So the dispensational view, the pre-trip rapture view, is very pessimistic. And I believe that this teaching has partly contributed to the general lack of social action found among American evangelicals. What is the greatest emphasis of American evangelicals generally? Is missions and evangelism. Right? Do you guys remember my message from a year ago, the great reversal? I talked about in there how the reformers, they were very balanced about evangelism and missions as well as social action and engaging and being salt and light in the world. How we as a church, Jesus, we believe Jesus expects the church to have a remnant effect on the city in which they dwell in. We, Jesus expects the church to engage society, not to depart from it. Not to go form little cities in the middle of Iowa or Arkansas <laughs> or Texas, right? I'm sorry, Texas has been home to a lot of cults. Texas and California seems to attract the most craziest people. All that space, you know, they don't know what to do with all that space. I don't know. So the major question is, will God rapture and spare the church from having to go through the Great Tribulation? 
Historic premillennialism, historic premillennialism, which is the post-trip view, teaches that the church needs to prepare herself to go through the Great Tribulation. Dispensational premillennialism, which is the pre-trip rapture view, teaches that the Great Tribulation is a display of God's wrath on the wicked and that God loves His church too much and that He will not put them through a tribulation. Jesus promises in Revelation 3.10, I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world. Dispensationalists use this verse to indicate that Jesus will take the church out of the world before the tribulation begins. This is diametrically opposed to each other. Although both camps are called premillennialists, both views have their opposite. There's actually not much in common between the two millennial views, the premillennial views. Now, although I honor the godliness and the ministries of dispensationalists all over America, I do not agree with their view of the end times because in my study of the scriptures, I am not convinced that the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. You know what? If it, the Bible says it, I'm willing to believe it. But in my study of the scriptures, I have not been convinced. It's also worth mentioning that in church history, it was not identified by any of our church fathers or reformers in all of their systematic study of the scriptures. It was never mentioned until John Nelson Darby came along. You know, I believe that's because you can't find it in the Bible. Unless you come at the scriptures with a dispensational agenda or a dispensational presupposition, you are not going to find a pre-tribulation rapture in the Bible. So I don't believe that these left behind books, all these ideas, I don't think that they are adequately defended by scripture. Now the plain reading of the end times texts in all three gospels that I mentioned earlier, it shows that the elect will go, they will be on the earth through the great tribulation. If you study those scripture passages, you will find that Jesus mentions the elect. The elect is talking about believers, people chosen. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you may, and I appointed you to bear fruit. We are predestined by God in his grace to become his people. Okay, that is the Calvinistic view of election. But you know what? The whole church actually believes in election and predestination. It's just a matter of what version of predestination do they believe in. So don't be so scared of that term either. In fact, I'm going to go into it a little bit more next week. And you know what? The simple attitude toward, toward predestination, that needs to go as well. You know, I was in my seminary class this past week, and I was so grieved. All the torch students in here, you know, I don't think I have class with any of y'all. So don't worry, it, this wasn't you, okay? I was grieved, man. We're talking about predestination. We're talking about Romans 9 through 11. And I happened to do a little homework on that. You know, I happened to kind of know that text quite well. And so, you know, 
in this class were discussing the five points of Calvinism. And I was so grieved that my classmates could not articulate what those views were. And even when the professor clearly taught it, they still could not articulate it during the break time. One person came up to me and says, yeah, yeah, you know, I agree with you, Christian. You know, I'm, I'm a Calvinist just like you. And I said, all right, well, all right, yeah, yeah. I was kind of talking a little more. And then he articulated a non-Calvinistic view of election. So I'm just like, man, you know what? If seminarians cannot articulate this view of predestination, there's something terribly wrong. Because these are the guys who are going to go on to pastor our local churches. You know what? The simple attitude to predestination, that needs to end as well. You know, a lot of people have that same attitude. No one can ever know. You know, we can't put God in a box. No one can ever know. I disagree. It is clearly and explicitly taught in the scriptures. And next week, I'm going to talk about the role of the Jews and Jerusalem in end times events. And without a clear view of election, you will not be able to accept what I believe is a biblical view of what God's going to do for the Jews and for Jerusalem in the end times. Now, what I'm going to articulate next week may look very clear, that may look very similar to dispensationalism, but it is completely not. I'm coming at it from a completely different hermeneutic, a completely different system of interpretation. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I don't want to confuse you more. Uh, let me stick with the Great Tribulation. All right, let's, start, let's stick with this. All right. Um, the plain reading of the three gospel passages about the end times, it shows that the elect will be on the earth through the Great Tribulation. Systematic theologian Wayne Grudem says that there is nowhere in Scripture where it clearly teaches that the church will be taken out of the world before the Tribulation. You just cannot find a clear teaching on it. The passages that dispensationalists use to support their view, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you know what? It cannot talk about a secret second coming of Jesus where he raptures the church before, uh, because it says, uh, wait, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I, mean, I think you guys have to see it. I'm going to read it in the ESV. Can I get that AC on? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to read it in the ESV. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. In another version, it says, with a loud command. With the voice of an archangel. Now, do you guys think the voice of an archangel will be a whisper? I don't know what an archangel exactly is. But I imagine that boy is a bad homie. <laughs> and if Archangel opens up his mouth, everybody's going to hear what the Archangel has to say. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. I also would imagine that the trumpet of God will not be a... <laughs> now, why am I reading this passage? I'm reading this passage because dispensationalists use this passage... You got to point it away from me. Um, can you get that, please? Can you please um, point it away from me? Thank you very much. I'm trying to trying to be gentle to my staff. I'm sorry about that. All right. The reason why I'm mentioning this passage uh, is a demonic AC. All right, let's, let's, just, let's keep it off. Let's keep it off. Let's keep it off. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because dispensationalists use it 
to support their idea of a secret second coming of Jesus where he raptures the church out from the earth suddenly before the tribulation. Now, the problem with that is this text says that this event, this rapture is going to take place accompanied by three things. The cry of command. ESV says a cry of command. Another version says a loud command. Now, if this is a secret rapture, I think Jesus wants to keep it low, don't you think? (laughs) Second, it says the voice of an archangel. And third, the sound of a trumpet. I don't think the Bible can be any clearer that this rapture is an open and public event, not a secret one. So you can see the exegetical problems that dispensationalists run into. I also disagree with dispensational premillennialism because it can, it's going to have devastating effects on the church. Uh, in Mark three thirteen, in Mark chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus said, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It sounds like here to me that the rapture, the gathering of the elect, it takes place after the tribulation. How do I know this? Verse 24. After the tribulation. (laughs) You know, good sound exegesis is not rocket science. The gathering of the elect from the ends of the earth. It says from the ends of the earth. Not just from the heavens for all the believers who've died. It says from the ends of the earth. This gathering of the elect, which probably is talking about the rapture that 1 Thessalonians 4 is alluding to. This rapture takes place after the tribulation. What does that mean? That means the church goes through the tribulation. Matthew 24, verse 9, Jesus said, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You know, if the church is raptured, why are we being delivered up to tribulation and being put to death? Where are all these believers coming from? Where are all these courageous believers coming from? You know, this dispensationalists might say, well, those are the believers that believed in Christ during the tribulation. After the church was raptured up, they were all so shocked and they were all crying like the lady in the movie. They were all crying. They gave their lives to the Lord. And then those are the people that are facing all this martyrdom. I don't know, man. That's a lot of courage to face martyrdom with that kind of boldness. Usually you need to have some strong. First of all, you need some time to grow. Amen. I mean, if you just believed in Christ this past six months and somebody, some, somebody came up to you and threatened your life and said, deny Christ, I'm going to kill you. All right. If you say, um, um, hey, chill, man, I'll, I'll just do it. All right. I'm not going to blame you if, you if you're just like a baby Christian. You know why? Because you need time to grow to that place of courage. It's highly unlikely that these people that are being delivered up are people that just received Christ during the tribulation. Because one, you need time. Two, you need good Bible teachers. You need strong church leaders. But you don't have any. (laughs) Because they left 
left their clothes behind and they're all gone. What are you going to get on their smartphone and try to figure out what they taught? And then, then you get bold and you face martyrdom? Uh-uh. Now, I believe that this martyrdom is being faced by the church who has stayed on the earth through the tribulation. Matthew 24, 13 says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If the church got raptured, who's preaching the gospel here? Why does Jesus tell us about enduring to the end? Well, shouldn't Jesus say, hey, just endure until the rapture. I know you, you face a lot of persecution on the earth. Just endure until the rapture. Now, Jesus says, who he, he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. If the church is gone, I don't see that many people proclaiming the gospel during these seven years. Um, most people think the great tribulation is seven years. So it's not... 50 years, everyone. It's just a little while. You know, seven years can feel a long time if you're in first grade. Okay. When you're in first and second grade, remember, you're like, every year seems so long. You're like, hallelujah, I'm in fourth grade now. Yeah, I'm in fifth grade now. But when you turn like 25, you're like, man, how did I turn 25? How did I turn 29? Next thing you know, you're 34. You know, but when you're a kid, you know, seven, you know, year by year seems a long time. But check this out. Seven years. Depends on your view. It may feel long or it may feel short. But you know what? In the, in the course of end times sequence of events, it's a short time. There are Christians who have endured longer persecutions in church history past. Although church history persecutions generally did not last very long. That's a little secret truth that most people don't know. Romans didn't kill Christians for like 10 years straight. It was just for like seven months, a couple years, and then they get tired or, or they kill off so many that, you know, they, they, they move on to something else. A lot of Christians think, oh, man, you know, church used to get persecuted for year after year after year after year. No, that's not true. Study church history. Even the Muslims uh, in, in, in Persia, there were all these Nestorian Christians there. I'm, I'm studying Asian church history. Oh, man, I shouldn't get into this. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm over time already. Let me keep going. Let's keep going. Let's stick with this. All right. Uh, Matthew 24, 22. Jesus says this. Very interesting. Look at this. Matthew 24, 22. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of the elect, those days of the great tribulation, They're going to be cut short. Everybody should say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus. If the church is raptured, then um, what's all this talk about days being cut short and the elect having to get that kind of grace? The dispensationalists may say at this point that the elect... Here is talking about Jews who believe in Christ or non-believers who turn to Christ during the great tribulation. After the rapture, during the tribulation, they believe that these are talking about Jews or non-believers who turn to Christ. Well, check this out. I have a problem with that interpretation. You know why? Because Matthew 24 
was originally preached by Jesus to his apostles, knowing that they will be the church leaders in a few years, who will go on to teach the church, knowing that his words are going to be passed down in the church. So uh, if Jesus meant for us to interpret this passage as talking about Jewish uh, non-believers and non-believers who turn to Christ during the tri- tribulation, if he wanted us to apply that only to them, then you know what? Jesus made a huge omission. Don't you think? All right, I thought, I thought it was a huge omission. <laughs> That's a pretty huge omission. Jesus didn't qualify the elect by saying, the elect, which, by the way, in parentheses, is talking about Jews and non-believers who turn to me during a great period of great tribulation. He doesn't say that. Just for the elect, the sake of the elect, the days will be shortened. He who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel must be preached. By who? By the elect. By the church. By the people, the chosen people of God. You are a royal priesthood. A chosen people. So, brothers and sisters, my view is that there is no secret second coming of Jesus where he raptures out the church before the tribulation. There is only one second coming. I believe scripture teaches it most clearly that there is one second coming. It is a public one. It is a glorious one. It's one where Jesus is riding on the clouds. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds. Shining like the sun at the trumpet call. It does not say at the whisper of the trumpet call. <laughs> now, uh, when I was in college, my college mentor, Brother Michael, used to teach me. Brother Christian, we are living in the end times. Christian, you got to stay strong. You got to be faithful to the word of God because the world is going to get darker and darker. People are going to get more wicked and wicked. Scripture warns us about it. And so you got to be holy unto the Lord. But here's the crazy thing, Christian. Brother Christian, listen to me. Hallelujah. Oh, I feel the anointing of the Holy Spirit right now. Let me teach you something. Let me tell you something. Although the world will get darker and darker, the church will get brighter and brighter. It's going to happen simultaneously. And there's going to be a clarity where right now you can't tell which are Christians and which are not. But in the end days, it will be very clear. There will be a clear separation because those who are of the people of God, they are going to be holy. They're going to be victorious. They're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And those who are just doing cultural Christianity that were not really loyal to Christ, it's going to be clear to everyone where they really belong, where their allegiance really belongs. And so he used to teach me like this. And so I was influenced by that. And then I had to go to those scriptures and to see if what he was teaching me was actually true. And I don't have time, so I can't go into all the scripture, but I can just personally say that I have found that kind of vision of the end times to be what I feel is well represented by the scriptures. 
Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Most High God, Church of Jesus Christ, listen. I believe the scripture is saying that the church must go through the great tribulation. We may not have chosen this for ourselves, but once again, it was not our decision to make. The Father has said it. He has revealed it. And we got to get ourselves ready. But check this out. Although the great tribulation is going to be pretty difficult. Let me also share with you. That the church is not going to have this picture where they're just like, hold it on. Oh, Jesus, hurry up. Oh, so hard down here. Oh, the Antichrist. I can't stand the Antichrist. I hate you, Antichrist. Oh, Antichrist making our lives miserable. Oh, we got to huddle up and pray. No, 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 no. No, I believe scripture also reveals that through the great tribulation, you're going to have not this wimpy, scared little punk church. You're going to have a victorious bride, a praying church, a church that is filled by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a church that stands up for the word of God, that does not compromise in the face of persecution. And what is supposed to be the darkest hour for the world will be the most brightest hour for the church. The church will not just endure. We're going to overcome. Amen. We are more than conquerors. You know what? You want to join? You want to, you want to be a punk church that just goes out and you just want to go hide out? Go be my guest. But New Philly, we're going to be a praying victorious church. No matter what the members of this congregation go through in the entire world, wherever you are placed in the future, no matter what you go through, you are going to. To endure and overcome. And no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And just like Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says. Though darkness covers the face of the earth. Thick darkness over the whole earth. Over the the whole waters. The glory of the Lord will rise upon you. Kings will be drawn to the brightness of your dawn. I believe that verse is going to have a greater fulfillment in the end days. And I believe that on the earth, there are going to be different areas of the earth that are going to experience different levels of tribulation. It's not going to be like, you know, if 10 is the most difficult and 1 is the easiest. It's not like it's going to be level 9 throughout the entire world, Asia, Africa, America, everywhere. I believe that there are going to be areas that are going to be level 9, level 7, level 4, level 2. But there's going to be a great tribulation. The whole world will endure. But I don't think it's going to be just uniform throughout the whole world. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's all going to depend on how the church responds and how the church prays. In areas where the church is being a punk, where local church... I'm sorry, using that term. That's not very friendly. I'm sorry. That's not nice. Uh, Where the church is lacking courage, in those areas, it's going to be real hard because there are going to be a few leaders that are going to be able to really rally the people of God to stand up and face the persecution. 
Now, the good news is, by the way, Jesus says elsewhere that false Christs, false prophets are going to arise to deceive the elect if that were possible. Isn't that cool? You picked that up? Because Jesus talks about many will be led astray, many will be led astray, many will be led astray. And then he says, false prophets are going to rise to deceive even the elect, (laughs) if that were possible. What's Jesus saying? It is impossible for the elect, those chosen by God, marked by the Holy Spirit, to be deceived by these false prophets in Christ at the end times. That should give you courage. That should give you encouragement. You don't have to wimp out and facing the great tribulation. The grace of God is on you. The keeping power of God is upon you. So that when Jesus returns, you can be presented before him. Blameless and with great joy. If it was possible. (laughs) If it's possible. All right, so I'm, I'm going to close up there. All right, hallelujah. I got more notes, but I'm, I'm going to just let that go. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. Oh, snap. This is real good here. Okay, I'm going to let that go. Okay, I'm going to close up right here. I hope it's very clear. Next week, I'm going to uh, cover um, the theory behind dispensationalism. And then to, next week, I'm going to cover what's called redemption, redemption frameworks. Because this has everything to do with the future plan of God for the Jews. Dispensationalists are very outspoken that God has a future plan for the Jews. And it's actually a lot of dispensationalism that has kind of fed this American psyche to support Israel. But you know what? Dispensationalists are not the only ones that can soundly conclude that God has a future plan for the Jews. In fact, good historic premillennialists also believe that. And so this is called redemption framework. So next week I'm going to cover what's called replacement theology, covenant theology, and dispensationalism. All three are redemption frameworks that, you know what, a lot of people in the body of Christ are not aware of. But once I lay that down, then from there I'll be able to preach on why I believe that God still has a plan, a future plan for the Jews, and what I think that is. All right, and so that will conclude my end time series. Um, Everybody ready to go through the Great Tribulation? Everybody ready? Come on, y'all, man. All ready? You know, it can, it can happen in any, any way. Now, that's not to scare you. You know, these movies, Left Behind... They use these scenes of the rapture to try to get people. It's their evangelism method. In fact, uh, a ministry called Way of the Master in California, they've helped fund this movie, Left Behind, with Kirk Hammer in it. For them, they pushed it as a huge evangelism tool. Why? Because when a non-believer sees, oh no, if I don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to have to go through this tribulation with the Antichrist and all this crazy persecution on the earth. Oh, I'm not down with that. I'd rather believe in Jesus. And so, through that way, you know, people are believing in Christ. So, praise the Lord that people are believing in Christ. But, uh, 
the negative side of that is a lot of Christians in America, they think it's smooth sailing. All they have to worry about is evangelism and missions. And their private lives are full of immorality and debauchery. And the church is full of all kinds of politics and religious spirits. And they think, ah, oh, it's all right. You know, it all take care of itself at the rapture. And then, you know, Jesus is going to save us from that, from that tribulation. Okay. Here's, I'm, I'm sorry, I said I was going to close. I got to mention this before I close. This was actually in my notes, okay? The consequences of dispensational pre-trip, pre-millennialism, right? Pre-trip, pre-mill. That's all you need to memorize. Pre-trip, pre-mill. That's the dispensational view. The consequence of a pre-trip, pre-mill view is very, very devastating. Do you think about that? You're taught you're not going to go through the tribulation. But let's say John Nelson Darby and all these smart American evangelicals and movie producers and DC talk, let's say they're all wrong. And the tribulation starts. And you know what? One, the one thing that can precipitate the tribulation, the great tribulation, is the world's economy. Any, anyone in here, you study economics? You know, I went to NYU Stern, and I did not learn anything about the economy there. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but my good NYU Stern alumni friends... You know, and, you know, good people here in New Philly. When I discuss the economy with them, you know where we are at right now? We are at the brink of a global economic collapse where the world's currency systems will be meaningless once this collapse takes place. And for some people who are smart analysts, they are saying that this is not if it will happen. It's just a matter of time when it happens. You're already seeing the effects of it in Greece, in Europe, in Spain, where the unemployment rate is 25%. Korea, they'd like to report a lot of great statistics, but look closely between the lines. Korea's economy is actually quite, is struggling quite, quite a bit. Unemployment among young people has skyrocketed. That's why so many young people commit suicide, because it's just such a hard competition to even find a job after you graduate. You know, when the economy collapses, people are going, their hearts are going to melt and they're going to look for ways to restore the world's economy. And you're going to see some interesting things come up during that time. The post-millennial says the world's getting better and better. Christian businessmen, we need to take the seven mountain mandate and we need to engage the business mountain more and more because there's more and more favor there. There's more and more grace there. There's more and more money there. That's what you will hear from the post-millennial camp. But you know what? Sad. There's no empirical, there's no evidence or facts to support what they are claiming. The economy is not getting better. Businesses are not getting better. Do you see what's going on with the Occupy movement in America? People are infuriated. There's so much corruption. It is not a system that is going to last. It's not going to continue the way it has been indefinitely. And I believe the economy is going to play, play a big role in ushering in the last day, last day events. So you know what? Don't put your hope in riches. You can, I, I encourage you, engage the city, climb the social ladder, come to positions of influence, don't, but don't hold so tightly to it.
Because when the father says it's time, it's time for you to let go. The father says tribulation begins now. It's time for you to let go. The consequences of a pre-trip, pre-mill view being wrong is devastating. You know why? Because the church is completely unprepared for what is called the great, commission, great tribulation. Now, the consequences of historic premillennialism is like this. We're going to have to face the tribulation. People of God, pray harder. Read the scriptures. Come together. Unite with other churches. Be strong at this hour. This is the hour of the greatest display of God's glory. Church, you got to be victorious through this. And then, oh snap, we're getting raptured. Oh, my clothes are left behind. Oh no, my family's left behind. Oh no, I was wrong. We don't have to go through the tribulation. Oh, well. That's it. That's all the consequences over here with historic premillennialism. Over here with dispensationalism, with post-trip people. That oh no, oh, we were wrong. Where I got, where I got left behind. Wait a minute, everybody got left behind. What's going on? We got to go through the tribulation. I'm not ready. Oh. Oh, I wish we'd all been ready. Oh, yeah. I wish we'd all been ready. So, you know, on a practical level, I would say it's a little bit more, I don't know, safe. It's not quite safe. It's a little bit more smart. Not smart. I'm sorry. I don't want to use that. That's condescending. It's a little bit more wise (laughs) to be wrong about this than for you to be wrong about that. All right, let me pray. (laughs) Father, we just... uh, Actually, why don't we take a moment? I want to invite you all to pray on your own. I know I use a lot of humor to deliver my message. And you know what? I think the crazy thing is, even though there's going to be great hardships during the tribulation, the church is not going to lose her joy. The Bible actually gives us many promises, many commands. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice always. Give thanks to God in all circumstances. Romans 8.17 says, We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Those who are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ in these end times, they will receive crowns of glory in future times. Whether it's at the last, last day or whether it's during the golden age, there will be those who will be honored vindicated you know Jesus says in Luke chapter 21 he says you will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory 
Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Where Jesus said the nations of the world are going to mourn when they see him, he tells the church, raise up your heads because your redemption, your vindication is near. You know, when Jesus, when the great tribulation starts to take place, it's not a time for us to start panicking. It's a time for us to start rejoicing because Jesus is drawing near. Because Jesus is bringing everything under his feet. Because Jesus is going to be glorified. And his people are going to be vindicated. So all this talk of the end times should not cause you fear. It ought to cause you great courage and joy and faith. And next week, I hope you get next week's message. Because if your view of God's righteousness is shallow, it's simple. You will not be able to rejoice at Christ's second coming. Because the things that Jesus is going to do at his second coming, it is going to baffle your mind. It is going to offend you. It's going to cause you disillusionment unless you have a biblical view of God's righteousness and character. God is sovereign. And the Bible says that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will harden whom he wills. Those are not my words. Those words are from the scriptures in Romans chapter 9. When Jesus returns, he's not only going to vindicate his saints, he's also going to execute judgment on the nations. So all this is connected. All of this is connected. I'll give you a moment right now. Church, one of you guys pray. Pray that the church will be found victorious and courageous at the coming of the king at the time of the great tribulation that the church will be found faithful and victorious come on let's pray that right now come on father we pray oh god for a revelation